Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. I want to, this morning, carry on our series. We've been talking about the stories that Jesus told. And uh, I've been enjoying the series. I'm enjoying digging into some of the, the truths that, that Jesus gave us and the examples that he gave us. And uh, we've, we've, where we're at in, in today's story, we're talking about the parable of the sower. From Matthew chapter 13, if you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. We'll be referencing that in just a moment. But at this period of Jesus' life, he is uh, in his second year of ministry. So at the age of 30, Jesus uh, is baptised by John and he goes into the desert and he begins, he has his 40 days of fasting and, and then temptation by the devil. And, and after the, the first period of his life, we've reached the second. So this is after the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount you find in Matthew chapter 5, but it's before Jesus feeds the 5,000. He is doing a lot of miracles around the place. He's pretty darn popular with the people at this point. They've loved seeing everything that Jesus is about and what he's gone through. And, and wherever Jesus tends to go at the moment, crowds are following him. The, the problem is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, teachers of the law, are starting to get pretty uncomfortable with some of the things that Jesus is saying. In fact, for them, it, it's, it's really hard because they uh, are hearing things from Jesus that kind of undermines everything they do and who they are. Jesus really didn't hold back when it, it came to the Pharisees. Right before this passage that we'll deal with today in Matthew chapter 13, the, uh, the, there's been an argument with the Pharisees. They come to Jesus and they say, we want to see a sign, show us a sign. And, and Jesus kind of lets them have it as he does and he goes through this whole discourse and, and they leave from that moment. And not only do they leave, at this point in time, they begin to start plotting how they're going to kill him. So he, he is particularly unpopular with this group of people, that the masses, the, the Jewish people that followed him around, loved what he was saying, but the, the religious leaders didn't. And just after this argument, his mother and brothers come, and, and he, he's in a house at the moment, and he's teaching a large gathering, and the mother, mum and brothers are outside, and say, we want to see Jesus. And, and Jesus doesn't give them any special access. He says, my mother and brother are those that basically partake in the kingdom with me. That's, it's these people that are with me, not, not them. And, and the, the assumption, and there is some assumption here, is that perhaps with everything that was going on and that the Pharisees and what they were up to at the time, his mother and brother wanted to kind of get him out of, out of that place. And, and come on, Jesus, it's not a good place for you to be. Jesus refuses that, and, and, uh, and, and in a little while he launches into the, the parable of the sower. He's about to leave Galilee, which is where he'd been ministering, and his eyes are beginning to fix on Jerusalem. When he arrives in Jerusalem, we know the story there, that the Easter story begins to unfold as he heads towards the cross. Jesus has gathered a, a large crowd, as I said, and they're kind of expecting something from Jesus that he never intended. Jesus uses language like the kingdom of God. And we've talked about that phrase a little bit. And the people that 
he was talking to were Jewish people that were a conquered people under the authority of Rome and they wanted free. And they were waiting for this messianic figure that was going to deliver them. And then when Jesus starts talking about this new kingdom, they begin to assume that Jesus is going to lead an uprising. He's going to be their deliverer. Maybe it's going to be a political battle. Maybe he'll raise an army like others that had led rebellions before had done. And, And they start expecting that this kingdom Jesus is talking about is a physical kingdom. But Jesus isn't talking about a physical kingdom. Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom. He's talking about what takes place on the inside of people. He is the Messiah. He is a deliverer, but not in the way that they were intending. And so Jesus tells a parable, a story, to begin to explain to them what this whole thing is about. This is the first of the recorded parables in the book of Matthew the beginning of of Jesus kind of telling that. So we're going to read a few verses today in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprung up quickly because the soil was shallow. Sorry, it sprung up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, The plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still others fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus always told stories. He told a lot of stories. He loved taking things that people knew in their everyday life like Farming, in this case, sowing of seed, like fishing, and he would give it a whole different meaning, a spiritual significance. He would draw parallels between what people understood and what he was trying to communicate. It it all seems quite straightforward, the story that Jesus is telling, except it wasn't. The disciples were confused about what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand the significance of the parable. But rather than come to Jesus and say, look, we just don't get it, They ask him a different question. They ask him, why do you tell stories? Why do you always speak in parables? Jesus' reply, far from being straightforward, was quite complex and perplexing for the, the, the disciples. He quoted from Isaiah, and I'll read you the verse. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, Though hearing, they may not understand. Now, I don't know if you understand what that's about, but people that are a lot uh, wiser in the, the, the ways of the Bible that have done a lot more research and study than I have explain it like this. The crowds were following Jesus. They loved what they were seeing, but they weren't on the same wavelength as him. They'd closed their minds and their hearts to the kingdom of God. Jesus often used that line, he who has ears to hear... Let him hear. But as much as they loved the miracles, they weren't following the words and the teachings of Jesus. The people that followed him loved miracles. They they loved seeing the healings, the the deliverance, the the water being turned to wine, the feeding of the 5,000. The people loved that. They got excited by that. They, They really were just 
following this, I mean, it would be a pretty exciting thing to be part of and kind of see all that stuff happening. The problem Jesus had in his day is that as much as the people loved the miracles, they weren't accepting him as the Messiah. Everyone wanted to see the exciting stuff, but few people were prepared to make change. I think that's pretty similar to some of the issues that we may face today. People, and I've heard this language, if Jesus will heal me, I'll believe in him. If he'll just speak to me, I'll believe. If he'll pay my debts, help me out of this spot that I'm in, I'll believe in him. If my marriage is fixed, if my relationships are repaired, I'll believe in Jesus at that point. But the issue is, and it was clearly evident in the people of that day, that belief does not always follow signs and wonders. I remember a time that my, my stepdad shared with me uh, an encounter he had. He, we, uh, we, we went to church a lot well, as I was growing up, but I wouldn't say that my dad particularly believed in God. He kind of went to humour mum. And he, uh, he had a heart attack and he was in hospital. And he told me afterwards of this moment in, in the middle of the night, he woke up, he's in a room on his own, he woke up and the room was full of light. And there was someone sitting on the end of his bed and this person began to speak to him and, and dad says he knew straight away that Jesus was talking to him. He said, you nearly lost your life tonight. You've got one more chance to make things right. Now, I don't know whether the pain meds that dad was on or the fact that he'd had a heart attack and what was going on, he was hallucinating, but I do know that in his mind, what he thought was Jesus had appeared to him. That was a profound moment for Dad. Whether it actually took place or not is almost irrelevant because in Dad's mind it had. The problem was Dad did not make the changes that he needed to make in his life. I wasn't with him when he passed, so I don't know what happened in his last moments, but I know that the years following this encounter He didn't walk the walk. He didn't accept Jesus as his saviour. He wasn't a follower of the ways of God. People can say, if I just see, if I just experience, then then I'll believe. But I've seen in my own family that that is far from true. I don't know many people that wouldn't, want to have an encounter like that. I'd love to see Jesus sitting on my bed and have a conversation. That'd be pretty cool. wouldn't like it in the context that my dad had it in, but it'd be pretty cool. Belief doesn't always follow naturally from miracles. The Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. How many times, no matter, sorry, no matter how many times we see miracles, we see the signs and wonders we still must make a decision to follow the miracle maker. The crowds, by their own actions, had cut themselves off from God's revelation of his kingdom. They, they missed his real message. The disciples and a few others were willing to hear. They accepted his teachings they followed, but the masses didn't. Parables revealed to those who were hungry and confused, but it concealed it from those who were too lazy to look or too bound up and blinded by hatred and prejudice to discern it. Tragically, many heard the messages who were not saved. Many were called and few were chosen. Rather than 
hand us a blueprint to the kingdom, some dot to dot or pipe paint by numbers of how we're supposed to do this Christian life. God invites us on a journey of discovery. We discover who he is and we discover in the midst of that who we are. He invites us to begin this process of transformation. The idea is that like a caterpillar who goes into a cocoon and comes out as a beautiful butterfly, that process is called metamorphosis. The the uh, words in Romans chapter 12 do no longer conform to the ways of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the Greek word transform, metamorphi, which we get the word metamorphosis. God is saying that we, we shouldn't follow the pattern, the, the dot to dot, the paint by numbers of the world, but we should be transformed as our mind is renewed. We should go through a process of metamorphosis. We become something completely different. There's a transformation, a change that's supposed to take place. The old is gone, the new has come. We begin to develop as we follow him, as we walk the path, the, the fruit of the spirit begins to grow in our lives. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The things that we used to get us upset don't get us up quite as upset anymore. The, the, where we once would be in turmoil, we experience the peace and joy of God in the midst of circumstances that might have shipwrecked us in the past. We begin this process of transformation as we follow him and we discover who he is and what we're about. So the disciples have come and they're confused and they're asking Jesus, what's this whole thing all about? And Jesus goes on to explain it to them. He spells it out line by line. Let's read from Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown among the path. The second, the, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of his life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. In this parable, Jesus is the sower. But it also represents people who share the word of God in, in context, maybe like me on, on a Sunday, maybe in a small group, maybe one-on-one, that, that the seed that Jesus gives us, the understanding of his word, we sow into people's lives. We, we share the, the word. And recently I've become very aware of the, the weight of responsibility when it comes to dealing with the word of God. I have begun to realize that when I share on a Sunday morning, when I speak the word, if I do something, if I say something that's not true, if I, if I take us down a pathway unintentionally of, of error, I, I realize that there are some people in the room that may be aware of that, but a lot of people wouldn't be. And, and I have a responsibility because for a lot of people, I shape up your view of God, your view of his word, your view of yourself. And, and sometimes I'm going to get things wrong and make mistakes. That's part of why we have an eldership in the church. Part of their responsibility is to keep me on track. 
they, if I do something or say something that isn't quite right, then they have a, a right and responsibility to, to bring that to my attention. The, the seed that Jesus is talking about is his word, understanding the, the principles of the kingdom. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's written in your Bible. It's sung about in songs. It's in the beautiful lyrics of poems. It's in the recesses of our heart and our mind. Jesus even goes as far as to tell us what types of people that the soil represents. The hard-hearted person doesn't understand the word. Shallow rocky soil won't allow faith to take root. The unprepared weed-infested soil will choke out faith. And the good soil allows the word to flourish. It all seems simple enough. Jesus has given a parable and then he's explained the parable. So what am I doing talking about it today? He's spoke, spoken the parable. We can read it and he's given the explanation. It's kind of like he's done my job for me. Except when we read this parable, we tend to come at it from a certain angle. We are hardwired when we hear a story to look for the meaning, the, the, the hidden Revelation, the truth that's there. When, when we're young kids, we, we're told stories, but stories have morals. They have a, a purpose for telling the story. With each of my kids, I've sat down and explained the story of the boy who cried wolf and why their lies don't help them. When the, they lie to me consistently, and, and kids go through this phase, when they do that, I don't believe them when they're telling the truth. And we, we, I tell them the story because it, it, it's something that they can understand. It, it makes sense to them. And when we read this parable, and when we speak about this parable, we look for a hidden meaning. We look for, for some truth that's there. What's the, 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 the moral of the story? And we begin to put words such as, be the good soil. We assume that when we read this passage, that's the meaning, be the good soil. And, and people speak messages on this, and I probably have done the same thing myself. And we go from there, you've got to be the good soil. Don't be the bad soil. We need to be the good soil. And it makes sense in our mind that when we hear the story, that that's the logical conclusion. But in reality, Jesus never said that. In explaining the parable, he never said, be the good soil. Firstly, I think that if he'd meant to say it, he would have said it. He explained the parable and he never said that. Secondly, I don't think any one of us is any one particular type of soil. I think it's possible for us to be all kinds of soil at all kinds of times. There are things that I hear that, that make sense to me and bring change. There are things that just I, I ignore or, or I, I go a little bit. I think... We, we swap in and out, and it's hard to say, right, you're the thorny soil, but, but you come on, you can be the good soil. Be the good soil. You can be the good soil. I don't think this parable is really about dirt at all. I think this parable is about what the name implies. The parable of the sower is about the sower. <laughs> It's, it's not about the soil, it's about this relentless God that throws seed out, knowing that hard-hearted people won't receive it, knowing that, that even though he's throwing it, it's, it's not always going to find 
a good soil. It's the perfect picture of a God who loves us and with grace disperses seed, knowing that his disciples in, in his hour of need would abandon him. They would deny him. They would walk away. They'd go back to their lives. They would be hiding in fear. Yet he sowed seed anyway. He sowed seed into our lives knowing that we're not going to always receive it. But this relentless God is pursuing relationship with us and he sows the seed anyway. Parable of the sower is about the sower who scatters seed with reckless abandon. And if there's a God that is sowing seed, the logical conclusion or question I come to is, actually, how can I be good soil? How, how can I be the kind of person that if, if God's got something to give me that I will receive it, that I will, I will allow that thing to take place in my life, that the, the seed to find good soil to, to grow and, and to, to bear fruit. How can I, if God is trying to teach me something, if he's trying to show me something, if he's throwing with grace the seed, I want to receive it. My hope for you this morning is that you'd want to receive it as well. That you'd make a decision that if God is throwing with reckless abandon, if he's pursuing relationship with me in spite of all our problems, in spite of our unbelief, in spite of our sin, if he's still doing that, I want to receive everything that he has for me. In order to do that, I need to make my life full of good dirt. I must be prepared to recognise an opportunity to grow. I must embrace the process of transformation. There are two kinds of, of, or two different concepts of time that I want to examine this morning. The first type of time is one we will understand well. It's the chronos, the chronological process of time. Time ticks by, I look at my watch and I can see seconds going by. You're looking at your watch this morning, wondering when I'm going to stop and when you can get out of here this morning. We, we have a clock on the back window. I have a, a timer that I have here on, on my pulpit so that I know how long I've spoken for and how long I've got to go. We, we have a beginning and we have an end. We understand that intuitively that time continues. Linear time. But there's a second concept that the Greeks had that I think is helpful for us, and it's a word some of you may know. It's the word kairos. Kairos is an entirely different thing. While chronos or chronological time ticks on, kairos happens in a moment. The The dictionary defines it as this, as a time when conditions are right for the accomplishment of a crucial action, the opportune and decisive moment. A kairos moment is a moment that changes other moments. A kairos moment happened the moment you got married. Every other moment from that moment forth was shaped by that moment. A chronos moment is, is a moment where you have a revelation of something, where perhaps something bad happens in your life. Kairos, sorry, can happen good and bad. Kairos can, can be a great thing for you. It can be a destructive thing in your life. Kairos happens in a moment. And it defines other moments. It shapes those moments. Kairos happens when God speaks to us. When we get to church and, and in the middle of worship or the word or something, we have a moment of revelation. It's like a light bulb comes on. Think, yes, 
I need to make that change. I need to make that adjustment. It's when God interrupts our life with seeds to sow. But most of us, me included, often move on from those moments without real lasting change. It's like the parable of the sower. The seed hits us. The revelation, the the good, the bad, it, it comes, but we don't examine those moments. We don't unpack those moments and allow them to make a difference. Let's pick an example this morning. Some of us may have experienced this. I know I have at various times. We come to the decision that we're watching too much TV. I don't know if you've ever made that decision in your life. I just am watching too much TV. I'm missing out on time with my family or we we always eat dinner in front of the TV. We're not connecting as a family and I need to make more room for God in my life perhaps or I need to make more room for my family. We make a decision that we're going to stop watching TV. Right, I'm going to stop watching so much TV and that lasts for all of about a day. You know, maybe one night if you're lucky and then you're back to your regular pattern. We have a moment, a Kairos moment that can potentially change every other moment but we don't allow that change to take place. But what if it was a Kairos moment? What if it was God wanting to bring change in your life? Wanting to do something that would bring fruit for his kingdom? See, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 gives us an idea of process. I've referred to it already. Jesus says, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That word repent in the Greek is the word metanoah. It literally means a change of mind. We've given repentance a really bad rap over the years. It kind of, none of us like hearing that word. It kind of does something. Oh, you need to repent, repent, turn and burn. Or burn, maybe, not turn and burn. We, we get scared of that word. It, it, it makes us feel something shameful, perhaps. Oh, I've got something wrong and I, oh. Yeah, I need to repent. You're right, Pastor. I need to repent. I'll come forward and I'll repent this morning. Maybe you do need to. That'd be a great idea for some of you. But repentance literally means a change of mind. At its core, I was living my life with a certain set of actions and beliefs this way. And I've had a change of mind. I'm no longer going to do that. I'm going to do this now. That's the heart of repentance, changing our mind on certain things. It's the process that God takes us through with the transformation, the renewing of our minds. Kairos is an event word. Kronos is a process. Kairos is an event. This morning, I think there's some practical things we can do to examine how a Kairos moment can change everything. How we get out of that place of going, oh, yes, I do need to do that, and actually following through on that. So I've got some practical steps this morning based on Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, repent and believe the good news. For a Kairos moment, there's three basic steps that are involved in repentance. In that moment, we observe. We observe our emotions. We observe our feelings. We observe what's going on for me right now. Something's happened and maybe we'll use the example of church. Something is said or done here and you go, yes, 
okay, you're right, honey. What, what am I feeling in that moment? Am I feeling guilt? Am I feeling shame? Am I feeling joy, motivation? What, what, what am I feeling in that moment? It's a feeling kind of thing, and for some of us, getting in touch with our inner feelings is going to be an issue. But for the rest of us, stop and observe in that moment, what are you feeling? When I do a, a, a marriage, a wedding ceremony, it's something that I do that I just did for John and Malika as part of their wedding a few weeks ago. I get the couples to stop in the middle of the wedding. I get them to look at each other. I get them to think about that moment. What are you feeling? What, what are you... What's going on inside you in that moment? Look at the person you're about to remember this moment because wedding ceremonies are fleeting. They're gone in a moment. And we can look back and it's like, oh, it was great, but we don't remember a whole lot. I don't know if you are like me, but I don't remember a whole lot about my wedding. I remember a few things, but not a whole lot. It just, it's gone because of everything that happens. But my hope is that in that moment, as the couple are looking at each other and, and actually thinking and feeling what is going on for me right now, but in years to come, they may remember that love. They remember that joy in that moment. They look back at their wedding, and that can be a significant thing for people. Once we have observed, the second thing we need to do is reflect. We need to ask ourselves, why did we react like I did? If something, if I react out of anger, why did I react out of that? Why was I angry in that moment? What, what is going on inside me that's caused that emotion, that feeling? We reflect. The third step in that process is we discuss. We bring others into our world. We, we do it in context perhaps of, of church. Maybe it's a pastor, a friend, a spouse, a connect group. We go, this is what's going on for me right now. I, I, I want to share my journey with you. It's called doing life with each other. It's called being an authentic community of faith. We share what's going on for, us, for each other. Confession is another one of those words that we hate along with repentance. That's the Bible talks about us confessing. In fact, in James chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's the sort of thing that I do with Carrie all the time. I tell her what's going on in my world. Why am I feeling like this right now? Sweetheart, I just want to talk to you about something. This is what's going on for me right now. Get other perspective. It's okay to ask other people. What have you seen? What have you observed? What, what, what have you noticed that I may have missed? And I, I like to think it's something that I'm, I'm good at doing is, is inviting other people to be part of my journey because it helps shape me. It helps mould me. I'm being transparent and authentic and allowing others to be part of my journey. But repentance itself is not enough. Simply changing our mind in a moment on something is not enough. I've seen this happen time and time again. Someone comes or makes a decision they need to make a change. Something needs to shift. And I'm going to repent, God, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that anymore. Make a commitment in that moment and then they go and do it. And now they feel guilty because they said they wouldn't do it and they repent again and then they do it again and they feel guilty. And the problem with guilt is guilt leads to shame. The problem with shame is shame doesn't draw us to God, it pushes us from God. We get to a place of of creating a barrier between us and God because we're, we're not good enough now. I, I keep doing it even though I know I shouldn't do it and I've, I've said sorry. Shame is a destructive thing in our life. Second part of change from that verse says repent and believe. That's about faith. 
Faith, according to the book of James, is not simply a nice belief, but it's a substantial display of belief. The book of James tells us that faith without actions is not faith at all. So I've got three steps for the faith part of it as well. Firstly, we need to make a plan. How will we change? What needs to shift? What does it look like? It needs to be clear. It needs to be achievable. It needs to be measurable. Not something that's out there. This I'm going to do this, but I'm going to spend 30 minutes a day and do this. I'm going to make sure that I, I am making this particular change in my schedule. It's something that we can tangibly see, that you can measure, that you know whether you've achieved it or not. But for the plan to succeed, it requires accountability. There's another word that we don't like. We need to externalise what's happening on the inside. We share with someone that we trust and we love. And and I'm in a a group of other pastors that I meet with uh, at the moment. We're we're meeting every fortnight on a Thursday night. And and we're we're sharing life together. And we, we just went through a process like this ourselves where we shared what was going on for us right now. And... Met a bunch of questions to ask and which one's standing out, what is God speaking to us? And then we left that night and prayed for each other, came home, and then we all followed up with an email in the coming two days. This is the changes I'm going to make. And those guys are holding me accountable to doing what I said I'm going to do as I am to them. And when we meet together next week on a Thursday night, we will be asking that question, how have you gone with those things that you said you were going to do? Accountability is powerful. The worship team can come and join me. My third Step in the process is once we've planned, once we've made ourselves accountable, you've got to act. You've got to do something. You've got to start. We, we need to go through this process in a moment of, of a Kairos moment of deciding and recognising what's going on for us and making a decision to make change. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to write those three steps for each side of that process down. If you want a copy of my notes, I'm more than happy to send it through to you. If you can make a little worksheet for this whole process. There's a beautiful example of this that Jesus gives us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the kind of life you need to live to be in the kingdom. It's pretty confronting. He says some things that people wouldn't have expected. There would have been a lot of anxiety and stress as people looking at their lives and the kind of life Jesus is talking about. How can I ever achieve that? Look at who I am in the midst of all this. I I can't. Jesus, being Jesus, recognises what's happening in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. He says these words from the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 25. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet the heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Recognises this stress, and he, he gives them this question. Are you not more important than that? And I, I can see light bulbs go up. Yes. I don't know exactly how the Sermon on the Mount unfolded, but I do know the process that was uh, consistent in those days. Is When someone was teaching, the students, the people that were listening, had an opportunity to ask and answer questions. They would have begun to unpack and explore what that meant for them. So Jesus gives them this beautiful picture, and then he finishes with a vision. Plan for change. Once the repentance has happened, 
They have a realisation that they've been focusing on the wrong thing. He takes them to the next step, found in the book of Matthew in chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. How do we build a life free of worry and founded on faith? We seek God first. We plan to make him a priority. Parable of the sower, it's about God. Sowing seed with reckless abandon, relentlessly pursuing us. It's his desire for a large harvest in your life. Challenge for us is what will we do in those moments when they arrive? Will we move on or enter into a phase of repentance and belief? I don't know what Kairos moments you're facing. I don't know what's going to happen for you in the rest of today and the week, but I know that there will be moments. There will be Kairos moments take place, a moment that can change other moments. As God speaks to you through the week, as you look at your own life, I've had moments myself this week. I've started journaling them down now, writing down those moments because I want to make a change. I've had some in the way that I'm parenting my kids. I I had a a moment where I go, you know what, that's right. I I need to look at doing it this way instead of that way. But if I don't share that with Kerry, which I did, if I don't write it down and make a plan to change, it's just another moment. But for me, I want to believe it was a Kairos moment. A moment that's going to change every other moment of the way I parent my kids. Church, I want to encourage you to embrace those moments. Some of them are good moments, some of them are bad moments, but they're all moments where we can learn, where we can grow. The Bible says that all things work together for the good of those who love God, called according to his purpose. God is the redeemer of the broken parts of our lives, the pain of our journey. We can grow and learn from that as much as the good things. In fact, often more. Kairos moments can happen anytime. question for you is, Will you embrace those moments? Will you repent in those moments? Change your mind on some things? Will you have faith to believe that you can make a change? God, I thank you that you are a relentless God. Thank you that you're a God with reckless abandon, sowing seeds. What a beautiful picture of grace that is. God, we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But you do it anyway. God, I pray that we would be people that would embrace those moments of change and transformation. That we would become more like your son. We'd grow in the fruits of the spirit and gifting. God, we would learn what it is to repent. Change our mind as we recognize a moment taking place. God, I pray we'd have more and more of those moments as we embrace it. We look at our lives as we examine what it is you might be saying to us, God, pray we'd be people that would embrace transformation. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And as we do that, you're welcome to sing. You're welcome to not sing. You're welcome to sit or stand. What I want you to do during the song is say, God, what are you saying to me today? What is it in this moment that I need to change? What is it about today's service, this message, what's happening for me right now? What is the area I need to repent and change my mind on? And then I'm going to invite others into that journey and I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to change. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www 
cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org.